Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, November the 1st, 2021. Welcome to a brand new month here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, GuyBensonShow.com. All things related to the program right there, including the podcast, which is free and on demand every single day. GuyBensonShow.com. We've got a very busy program ahead on this Monday in what could be a very significant political week. With all eyes on Virginia tomorrow, more thoughts on that in just a moment. But here's the lineup moving forward. Britt Hume will be here in the next hour. Some absolutely bruising polling for the Democrats and President Biden coming out over the weekend. We will get Britt's take on some of those stats which are giving Democrats across the country, especially here in Washington, D.C., a lot of heartache, heartburn, indigestion, perhaps. Britt's analysis upcoming in the next hour. Josh Krasauer will also be here. He is one of the sharper political analysts that I have encountered. He also really knows Virginia politics. He's from Virginia. He has great sources on both the Yunkin and McAuliffe campaigns. We're going to ask Josh for his final prediction of this race, which will be decided tomorrow. Really excited and almost slightly nervous for that conversation with Josh Krasauer. What is he going to say? What will he predict? And again, no one is perfect, but I put a lot of stock into Josh's analysis. Also later on here in studio in our final hour, the happy hour, Howie Kurtz of Media Buzz will be here talking about the media, a few little uh, firestorms related to the press, bias, President Trump, etc. We'll get to all of that with Howie and much more coming up here on today's edition of the show. Fox News alert as we get going here. Let's bring you the stats as we always do. 45.9 million collective cases in the United States all in on COVID. It's a low ball estimate, not even close to the much higher true number. A lot of cases were not caught by tests, particularly early on. The death toll in the United States from COVID now 745,353. That's the number of Americans who have died with or of COVID over these last 19 months. Now, I mentioned in the context of the Josh Krasauer interview, this Virginia race. And if you are a regular listener to the show, which we appreciate each and every one of you, you know that I am really focused on this race, not just because I happen to be a Virginia voter, but because this is a Biden plus 10 blue state That has a real chance of going into the red column, at least at the governor level tomorrow. 
Glenn Youngkin has run, in my estimation, a very smart and disciplined campaign. And whether that's enough, well, that remains to be seen. I will say this. We saw from the University of Virginia their political organization that does so much of their sort of ratings, rankings, not just in Virginia but across the country. That's the Center for Politics at UVA. And the crystal ball is what they call it when they make these declarations. They have shifted the race that was not long ago leans Democratic The new and final ranking or rating of this contest heading into tomorrow, not toss-up, leans Republican. Isn't that interesting? Let's see later on if Josh Crossauer agrees because there are a number of different factors at play, one of which is the polling. Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, now has a very slight lead in the polling average at 538 at Real Clear Politics, he is ahead by a nose. But that's also within the margin of error, right? So at least based on the polling, we have a deadlocked race in Virginia. And the point that I've made, and I'll get into my full analysis tomorrow. I'll make my prediction tomorrow. One thing that I'm actually going to do tonight, Glenn Youngkin is having his final campaign rally in Loudoun County, Virginia. Loudoun, of course, being one of these exurban Northern Virginia areas that has trended significantly blue in recent years, might be trending back. Education is paramount out there. The controversies involving the schools out there, the horrible cover-up involving now what has been a conviction on sexual assault has only fueled the narrative So this is not necessarily deep red Republican country by any stretch, but it is where Glenn Youngkin is choosing to conclude his campaign tonight. It's a relatively late night rally. It's starting around 9 p.m. And I'm going to try to get there just to observe and see what it looks and feels like on the ground in what could end up being a bellwether area, Loudoun County, Virginia. So I will give you that full report, plus my final analysis and predictions Tomorrow, what I will point out is the hilarity of what Terry McAuliffe is now trying. He's absolutely shameless. By the way, there's a new poll out today from the local Fox affiliate, Fox 5 DC, that has Glenn Youngkin ahead by two points, 47-45, with some going to the Libertarian and a small handful of folks undecided. And I think the hope from the Youngkin folks is that If the undecideds turn out at all, many of them might just decide not to, that they will break as the late deciders toward effectively the challenger in this race, especially given the mood of the country right now. And we'll get into those numbers with Brit Hume in the next hour. The NBC News poll in particular yesterday, national, not Virginia, national, is so bad for Joe Biden and the Democrats. You have to think that that's going to have an impact in Virginia. And if it doesn't or not enough of an impact, then Virginia is just a straight up blue state. But again, I I think the Republicans can't take anything for granted in Virginia because this is a state, as I mentioned, that Joe Biden won by 10 points just a year ago. What McAuliffe is trying to do, as we've talked about multiple times on this show, is say the words Donald Trump as often as he possibly can. That has been the strategy now for months. Our colleague Brett Baer 
had the quip on Fox News Sunday recently saying he's testing, McAuliffe is, whether noun verb Donald Trump is going to be a successful strategy. But this weekend, all of a sudden, some backpedaling from Terry McAuliffe. All of a sudden, Terry McAuliffe wants voters to understand that the race actually isn't about Donald Trump. Good luck with that. Here's what he said. Cut five. You know, Dan, this isn't about Trump. You know, so this is about what's happening here in Virginia. And it's not about Trump. It's about who's going to take Virginia to the next level, get us through this COVID crisis. Uh huh. It's not about Trump, sir. Even CNN. Even CNN could not abide this. Here was their lead of their article about these comments. Terry McAuliffe claimed on Saturday that the Virginia gubernatorial election, quote, is not about Trump, even though the Democratic gubernatorial candidate has invoked the former Republican president perhaps more than any other political figure. The comment, which belies the fact that tying Republican nominee Glenn Youngkin to Trump has been a central political strategy for McAuliffe since the start of the campaign, represents a significant shift for the Democrat. You don't say. I'd call it more than a significant shift. You know how CNN likes to have those snarky graphics on the screen where they fact check typically Republicans and usually Trump, which is a borderline professional or like Trump will say something and then they'll, you know, Trump colon and then the statement and then in parentheses. But that's not true. Well, Terry McAuliffe somehow earned that treatment with CNN's graphics department over the weekend, which is a real achievement, actually, for a Democrat. Their graphic said McAuliffe claims Virginia race, quote, is not about Trump, parentheses, after making race about Trump. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, sorry, it's funny. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. McAuliffe could win this thing. It's a blue state. But the desperation and the fear from these people, I just I'm going to enjoy it for at least one last day and see what happens tomorrow. Because for him to do an about face, a 180 on the Trump question. And the centrality of Trump to the campaign is just embarrassing. Every commercial's about Trump. He talks about him constantly. So the Yunkin people put out a very funny video, which just is a full-blown rebuttal to Terry McAuliffe's new standard. Oh, it's not about Trump. They'll play that clip at the very, very end. And as you listen to this, it's a new ad that they just put out, a new video that they edited like in a matter of hours. These clips that you're going to hear are from... Just a handful of debates, interviews, and speeches. This is not every time Terry McAuliffe has said Trump on the trail. We don't have nearly enough time for that. We have three hours on the show. I think his Trump mentions would extend well past three hours. But just for a taste, this is what the guy who now says it's not about Trump has been saying for weeks and weeks and weeks. Cut 18. Terry McAuliffe wants to make this about a man who's not on the ballot in Virginia. Terry McAuliffe's campaign in Virginia is all about Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Trump. Donald Trump. 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 Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. 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 Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Trump. Donald Trump. 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 Donald Trump. Trump. Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump. He keeps invoking Trump. Donald Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump. Have you made this race too much about Trump? 
no, Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Says the guy prattling on about Donald Trump for months. It's his whole strategy. Even CNN uh, could not abide it. Now, McAuliffe was on uh, Meet the Press, NBC yesterday, and he was just lying up a storm on Meet the Press. He kept doubling down on the lies about book banning that he says Yunkin wants to do as governor. That's not true. He's gotten fact-checked by the Washington Post, but he went out and he said it again on Meet the Press. And NBC and Meet the Press actually tweeted it uncritically without a fact-check. It's interesting who can get away with that and who cannot on shows like Meet the Press. But that was one of his multiple lies. He was again talking about critical race theory as if it's not real, not taught in Virginia, not a thing. It's a racist dog whistle. Christopher Rufo, who's been our guest on this show, an expert on critical race theory, he cited over the weekend yet another example on the Virginia Department of Education website recommending, quote, critical race theory in education as a best practice that derives its definitions of, quote, racism, white supremacy and education equity explicitly from critical race theory. So the lying never stops from Terry McAuliffe. He's going to just lie sprinting. With just a flurry, a blizzard of mendacity to the finish, hoping that that's enough to excite his people and fire up his base to do what needs to be done tomorrow. They've got a lead in the early vote. There's no question about that. The question is, can Glenn Youngkin overcome that lead on Election Day tomorrow when most Republicans tend to vote? And it is a nail biter. Now, when it comes to motivating the base The one secret weapon that Terry McAuliffe has is a certain sitting vice president who was on the trail this weekend for McAuliffe. And among other things, here is the scintillating content that she brought to the table to fire up the folks in Cut 16. Tell everybody you know to vote tomorrow. Nothing like saying, you want to meet me tomorrow? What What you doing tomorrow? You got any plans tomorrow? Tomorrow's a good day. It's going to be a good day. But the point is. (laughs) I love the two people clapping. And at first they're like, oh, this might be some, this could be entertaining. She might be going somewhere with this. No, she was going nowhere. She was going absolutely nowhere with that. Just saying tomorrow, you can hear her. She's sort of like smiling, almost chuckling at her own non-joke. Then she gets to, I guess, the applause line. Play it again. Listen to the listen to the applause at the applause line for Kamala Harris. Tell everybody you know to vote tomorrow. Nothing like saying, you want to meet me tomorrow? What you what you doing tomorrow? You got any plans tomorrow? Tomorrow's a good day. It's gonna be a good day. But the point is. two staffers in the back. There was a New York Times piece published yesterday contrasting the passion on the ground where McAuliffe is drawing like 
maybe a dozen to three dozen people at these events. At one point, I guess a staffer had to start a Terry, Terry chant because no one else was chanting. So the staffers were like, all right, we're going to generate some uh, fake excitement here. Meanwhile, Yunkin is drawing like a thousand people where he goes. And I'm curious to see what happens tonight in Loudoun. And the Times also specifically reported on how these crowds are noticeably more diverse than is typically seen at Republican rallies in Virginia. That's also of interest. And they're quoting people attending the rallies who have voted for Democrats, including Terry McAuliffe, in the past. And a lot of them are citing things, for example, like vaccine mandates and schools and critical race theory. And I know that the Democrats think that they have an advantage on these things or that they're fake issues. Well, they're not fake to a lot of voters. And we'll see if there's enough of them to put Glenn Youngkin over the top tomorrow. Man, oh, man, it is... Absolutely deadlocked. It is so close. It is exciting. It's also nerve wracking. Am I nervous? Absolutely. Do I have a message to people in Virginia who may not have voted yet? I sure do. Tomorrow's the day. Nothing like tomorrow, as Kamala would say. Tomorrow. She could have started singing. That little Annie. Ay, ay, ay. I won't do that. I like to think I'm a little bit less phony and more charismatic than Kamala Harris. All right, we got a break. Just getting started on The Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Big week ahead, big show ahead. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Went a little long in that last segment. I got caught up talking about Virginia in that Kamala Harris clip. That's just too good. I did want to take the opportunity just briefly here to acknowledge a story that broke. Jen Psaki, who's, of course, the White House press secretary, has tested positive for COVID. And we poke some fun at her. We call her circle back. And we're not always uh, terribly thrilled or impressed with some of her answers. Tough job, though, defending this president and some of the stuff that he's done. But we absolutely positively wish her very well in her recovery. She did say in a statement, quote, thanks to the vaccine, I have only experienced mild symptoms, which has enabled me to continue working from home, which sounds exactly like my breakthrough case that I had. So speedy recovery. Hopefully she tests negative soon and can get back to the J.O.B., even though we don't always love the way that she does the J.O.B., We still put partisanship and ideology aside on such matters. Feel better and get well soon, Jen Psaki. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this break. Stay with us. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you along every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. 
and around the clock on demand for free. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. This is some breaking news. It occurred just as we were going on the air earlier. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, one of the moderate Democrats, he announced a press conference or at least a statement involving the build back better Biden agenda, all of this spending. And by the way, there is a poll out from ABC News over the weekend where they asked people what impact would it have on your life? 32% said it would have a negative impact. 25% said it would have a positive impact. And the rest said either no difference or they're not sure. I know they keep insisting and telling us this is popular. The bill is popular. The people want this. The American people demand this. You look at those numbers where one quarter of the electorate says it would make their life better. And an even larger percent say it would make their life worse. And a huge majority say they don't even know what's in the bill. That is not exactly the definition of the American people crying out for something. American people are crying out for a lot of things. For example, more jobs, fewer shortages when it comes to employment, but also goods. A supply chain that isn't screwed up. Inflation that gets back under control. A secure border. Are Americans home from Afghanistan? There are a lot of things that people really feel strongly about in this country. The Build Back Better Biden agenda of trillions of dollars in tax increases, that's not up there. But the Democrats are caught up in this. They're caught up in this moment. And Joe Manchin, along with Kirsten Cinema, they have been the lightning rods that have been slowing this thing down in the Senate. And, of course, there's a fight over in the House as well. They were hopeful to get this thing passed last week before Biden left for Europe. That did not happen. And there's some reporting from the Hill about how once again, Biden like yanked the carpet out from underneath Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi thought that he was going to come up and and whip votes and say, I need you to do this, that and the other now. Specific call to action. He didn't do it. We saw that exact same movie, what, a month or so prior. So he left Capitol Hill empty handed. He left the country empty handed. And now they have delayed again a possible vote on this stuff because they don't know if they can get it passed. So Manchin says, I'm going to have a press conference. I'm going to come out and I am going to provide some clarity on where I stand. And there is, of course, great speculation. What's he going to say? Is he going to announce uh, publicly that he is now in favor of this supposed framework agreement that they were all chattering about last week. Remember, they said, oh, we have we're not quite there on the passage or the timing, but uh, we have a deal. That's what Biden said before he left. He said it's going to be fiscally responsible. It's going to add jobs. It's going to cut the deficit. It's going to do all these magical things, reduce inflation. Manchin himself had not expressed support for the so-called deal yet. Neither had Kirsten Cinema. Was this the moment that Manchin was going to get on board? Well, if that was your hope, which it was at the White House and among a lot of uh, Democrats, I'd say, on Capitol Hill and, of course, many people in the media who are part of the Democratic coalition, uh, that is not what they got from the West Virginia senator today. He came out. 
He said a few different things, including in cut 37 here, he was saying, let's vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill now. We can hold off on this other bill till later. There's a lot to look at there, and I'm not convinced on it yet. Let's do the bipartisan thing first, which, of course, is what the progressives do not want. But that was one of his big messages. Listen to cut 37. For the sake of the country, I urge the House to vote and pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Holding this bill hostage is not going to work and getting my support for reconciliation bill. I mean, so there it is. Right. That is the strategy of the progressives in the House. And they're being aided and abetted by leadership. And they think by holding the bill hostage, which is what they're doing, we're not going to vote for the bipartisan thing until we feel confident that we're going to get a huge amount of spending on the Democrat only bill. So we're not going to allow a vote. We'll tank it if it comes up. Manchin saying, good luck with that. You're not going to win my vote with that tactic. So let's vote on the bipartisan deal. And the progressives are going to say, absolutely not. We don't trust you. And we trust you even less now after this statement. This was a little hand grenade today from Joe Manchin. And it strikes me and it suggests to me they're really not that close. What were they saying last week? We might be hours away. Hours away. Nope. Nope. Unless the progressives back down and say, all right, fine, we'll cry uncle, let's just pass the bipartisan thing to get something done. And that would be a massive climb down from then. It's going to be a minute here. It's certainly not going to get done before the election in Virginia. I know some Democrats are wringing their hands about that. Oh, we've got to deliver some victory to help Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. Would it help? 25% of the country says they want it and it'll help their family. 25%. Is that really a, a helpful thing? Manchin went on. He's sounding sick of the political games, which he is accusing others of playing in Cut 38. In my view, this is not how the United States Congress should operate or, in my view, has operated in the past. The political games have to stop. Okay, so that might be just some boilerplate language from Manchin. Maybe not a lot of news in that clip. Him calling on an immediate vote or let's vote on the bipartisan thing first and holding the other thing hostage. It's not going to work to get my support. That is that was a little bit more newsy. The first clip that I played for you, I think what is particularly interesting and intriguing is what he said in cut 39. This has to be very concerning to the progressive caucus, to the left wingers who already had some distrust issues with Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema, listen to the way he talks about budget gimmicks, which if he sticks to this, I think is a real wrench in the gears. Listen here, 39. What I see are shell games, budget gimmicks that make the real cost of the so-called $1.75 trillion bill estimated to be almost twice that amount if the full time is run out, if you extended it permanently. And that we haven't even spoken about. This is a recipe for economic crisis. None of us should ever misrepresent to the American people what the real cost of legislation is. I mean, yes, thank you. Thank you, Senator Manchin, for saying this. We have been talking about this and warning about this for weeks throughout this debate. I saw, by the way, that the House was considering maybe trying to hold a vote on Reconciliation, that giant bill, trillions of dollars, whatever the actual number is going to be, without first getting a CBO score. And there's a nonpartisan budget group here in Washington, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. 
they put out a statement saying this is lunacy. You can't like you can't do that. I guess technically they could, but think about how shockingly irresponsible it would be to vote on a bill that's half baked that hasn't even been scored by CBO, which is the nonpartisan official congressional scorekeeper to determine how much something would cost and how the tax cuts or rather the tax increases in this case would hit what the economic impact could be. This is like basic legislation 101. And if they try to pass something without a CBO score, it's because they're afraid of what the CBO is going to say about their bill. Doesn't that sound like a great way of legislating and making law on anything, let alone something involving trillions upon trillions of dollars in new spending and tax increases in the middle of inflation and where people are worried about growth? Like just print a bunch more money, spend a bunch more money, raise taxes on job creators. It's nuts. It's even more nuts if you refuse to let the nonpartisan scorekeepers do their thing and have their say and inform legislators and the American people about what the damn thing costs before there's a vote. Now, what Manchin's doing is just slamming on the brakes here. Now, who knows? He might get up on the other side of the bed tomorrow and say something different. I hope not, because the point that he just made, I think, is crucial. And as I said a moment ago, it's something that we have been sounding the alarm about for quite some time. They are going to try because remember he was saying, oh, wait, I can't do more than two trillion. In fact, it should be one point five trillion. That was his top line number. The new number seems to be one point seven five trillion. That's what Biden was touting. But what Manchin is pointing out correctly. Is that getting the number down to that level involves a lot of gimmicks. Yes, they cut out paid leave and a few other major components, but they also engaged in gimmickry where they talk about the pay fors over 10 years, but only what a few years of the actual program to make on paper the number look smaller. Even though if you look at the real number over a 10 year budget window or you extend it permanently, which is what they're saying they want to do, right? That's what they say out loud, right? On paper, they're doing all this smoke and mirrors, to try to make the top line number look smaller to win over the support of someone like Joe Manchin. But out of the other side of their mouth, they say, oh, don't worry, though. This is to their progressive activists. We're going to make that permanent. That's the goal to make it permanent. So they're giving the game away. And Manchin, at least as a Democrat, who's willing to call the game out for what it is. He talked about exploding inflation. He talked about the debt in this little news event today. And here's one of his quotes. He said this to the reporters, uh, quoting now, how can I, in good conscience, vote for a bill that proposes massive expansions of social programs when vital programs like Social Security and Medicare face insolvency and benefits that could start being reduced as soon as 2026 in Medicare and 2033 in Social Security? How does that make sense? I don't think it does. I'm just grateful to hear anyone in Washington talking about this, especially a Democrat, a crucial Democrat whose vote is required for any of this stuff. They want to expand programs and create new entitlements when the ones that are already on the books are going insolvent, according to the bookkeepers. Manchin's like, well, what's that about? And then as you just heard there, he said, as more of the real details come out, I see shell games, budget gimmicks. That make the real cost of the so-called $1.75 trillion bill almost twice that amount, 
if the full time is run out or if you extend it permanently. We haven't even spoken about that. He's exactly right. He is looking directly at what the leadership is trying to do and saying, I see what this attempt is and I'm not buying into it. And if he digs in his heels, which I really hope he does on this, where the shell games and the gimmicks aren't going to work and he wants a real cost of one to one point five trillion, not engineered through bogus, tricky math. Then they are farther away from any sort of consensus or deal than we even suspected they were. So that was significant. He didn't necessarily provide the clarity that was advertised. He certainly did not give the Democrats what they were hoping to hear, which was, okay, I've gotten on board. He is saying the opposite. He's saying we've got a bipartisan deal on immigrate on uh, infrastructure, rather hard infrastructure. We've passed it out of the Senate. Let's do it in the House now. Let's do that first. Stop these games. Stop tying these things together. If you hold it hostage to try to get me on reconciliation, it's not going to work. Vote for the infrastructure deal now. We know that the squad and the progressives are going to say pound sand. And so the Democrats and the leadership in Pelosi, they end up right back where they started here, which is two sides that seem to be intransigent, not trusting the other. So I think the disarray among Democrats has deepened just a little bit earlier this afternoon based on this statement from Manchin. Of course, you're like on pins and needles. What's the guy going to say? And he came close to saying almost the opposite of what the leadership in the White House was hoping to hear. Now, he didn't come out and just say, I'm against it. You, it's I'm a no vote. I'm a hard no. So let's just pass infrastructure and move on. He didn't say that. So it could have been worse, I guess. But the idea that this is going to happen anytime soon and that they're just right on the cusp, right on the precipice of a big breakthrough and a victory, uh, that would be a big, cold dash of freezing water from Senator Manchin this afternoon. Newsworthy. Let's see if he continues to have the courage of his convictions, but he didn't sound like a guy who was terribly eager to get pushed around by the hard left. Interesting. All right, when we come back, a little controversy that has just refused to die over the weekend. A pilot, Southwest Airlines, allegedly said, let's go Brandon on the intercom. People are losing their minds. Did he even say that? What are the standards here for comportment? I'll weigh in briefly after this on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on The Guy Benson Show, we've talked about this whole Let's Go Brandon thing. There's a whole segment on it. I made my position clear. And... It is a spinoff, a derivative of another chant, F. Joe Biden, that I think is extremely disrespectful, even though I strongly oppose this presidency. And I get there's like a goofiness to it because a sports reporter live on the air had people chanting F. Joe Biden in the background, and she was just like flustered and trying to explain it away. So she said, it sounds like they're chanting, let's go, Brandon. And that has given flight to this whole sort of meme on the right. I'm not clutching my pearls about it, but I also think it's disrespectful. I'm not participating in it myself. Now, there's this accusation 
that a pilot at Southwest Airlines over the intercom at the end of a flight said, let's go, Brandon. There was an Associated Press reporter, I guess, who was on the plane. People are absolutely losing their damn minds over this. Like We have to find this man. We have to fire him. He's dangerous. If he's that angry and maybe mentally ill, perhaps he has a, a substance abuse problem, he might crash the plane on purpose. I mean, it's, it's nuts. Now, I don't think that that's an appropriate thing to do in that position. I wouldn't love to hear it from a pilot. Southwest has said we're going to look into it. There's an investigation. We don't condone getting political on the job. We just want to serve our passengers. We like people who have different viewpoints. We serve a lot of Americans. By the way, I wish other airlines would do that on other issues when they get political because that happens. But the absolute freak out meltdown over this alleged let's go Brandon thing on a flight. I'm just trying to figure out what the standards are. Because I remember when Nike and Disney shoveled a bunch of cash at Colin Kaepernick, right? The guy who called police pigs, portrayed them as pigs. The guy who says that July 4th is a white supremacy celebration. Some of the biggest companies in the country have gone out of their way to pay him money and make him a spokesman and a partner for them. And when conservatives objected to that, I wasn't calling on him to get fired, but I absolutely objected to it. I was calling out the hypocrisy of some of these companies. A bunch of leftists and progressives are like, oh, suck it up, cry harder, right-wing snowflakes. But then a pilot allegedly says, let's go Brandon on a plane. And these same people are like, it is the end of days. I don't quite understand what the standard is there, aside from just like tribal outrage. And it's like a national news story. And it turns out it's possible he said, let's go Braves about the World Series. We're not even sure what he said. Oh, we live in such a ridiculous, stupid time. I wish we were a more serious country than this, but we're not. Brit Hume coming up. He's serious on The Guy Benson Show. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It is a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. We are live from the Tony Snow Radio Studios at the Fox News Bureau in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Thank you so much for tuning in each and every weekday. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Around the clock for free, on demand on the podcast, of course. GuyBensonShow.com is our website there. GuyBensonShow.com for all of your Guy Benson Show needs. It works out well. Fox News alert as we kick off this middle hour. The Dow ends the day up 94 points, closing at 35,913. That is an all-time intraday high for the Dow and also the S&P 500 and also the NASDAQ. So a strong day up on Wall Street. As we begin our middle hour of three, I am very pleased to welcome back to the show our colleague, Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News. Britt, it is great to have you back. Thanks, Guy. Glad to talk to you. I would like to talk about some polling numbers that have come out in the last 24 hours or so involving the Democratic Party, the national scene, President Biden. Before I get to that, I do want to play for you a soundbite 
uh, that just happened on one of our competitor networks, Larry Sabato, who is a longtime political observer, kind of uh, for, for many years, kind of like a conventional wisdom sort of guy, political analyst. He would look at races and they would say, OK, we're, we're projecting that this race tilts to the red or this race tilts to the blue or what have you. And his group has just actually shifted the Virginia governor's race into leans Republican territory. That was today. In recent months, Mr. Sabato has sort of abandoned the position that he held for a long time, that of sort of a dispassionate analyst. And he's become much, much more partisan and combative. And uh, he's making it very clear he's a man of the left, sort of in the sort of in the mold of Keith Olbermann or something. He was asked about the Virginia race. I'm sure he's very unhappy that they shifted it to lean Republican. Here's what he said would be his way of explaining a potential Glenn Youngkin victory tomorrow in Virginia. Cut 40. The operative word is not critical and it's not theory. It's race. What a shock, huh? Race. That is what matters. And that's why it sticks. There's a lot of we can call it white backlash, white resistance, uh, whatever you want to call it. It has to do with race. And so we live in a post-factual era anyway, Chris. This is a post-factual era. It doesn't matter that it isn't taught in Virginia schools. It's this generalized attitude that whites are being put upon, and we've got to do something about it, we being white voters. All right, Britt, uh, there you heard it. Uh, there are ways to rebut that because it's actually in the well, documents that – go ahead. Well, speaking of post-factual, as he did, what about all the evidence that has been produced by Chris Rufo and others that show just the extent to which what is being taught in Virginia schools is inspired by and driven by critical race theory, a yep. term that comes up in the documents that uh, are used for teaching materials and to instruct teachers in the state. Of course, critical race theory, directly or indirectly, is being taught in Virginia schools, and parents are up in arms about it because it is itself a racist theory. Uh, and I would say that that uh, that if you're talking about post-factual, um, we're dealing here with a man who seems unacquainted with the full set of facts, which is very disappointing. I've known Larry for a long time. He's an old friend of mine. I've always thought had the greatest respect for the Institute of Politics that he created out of his own energy and imagination down there at UVA. It's been a great success, um, and it continues as his recent uh, um, as the group's recent analysis of the Virginia race establishes to do fairly neutral uh, political analysis. Um, but what's coming out of his mouth is amazing to me. I think, you know, he's one of these people, there's a, and there's a very large number of them, who kind of reacted to Trump so strongly that, uh, that you know, their, their judgment of everything political has been distorted by it. And I fear that's what happened with Larry. Yeah, sort of uh, the the broken by Trump effect, and he was not this way for the longest time. Sort of milk toast, uh, you know, thoughtful. I wouldn't say just... milk toast. He was he could be pretty edgy. Um, All right, but, but he's very but he's very good and a very good analyst, and one you could count on to see sort of all sides of the equation and balance them in a sensible way. He was interesting. This kind of stuff is just you know is not interesting. It's just boilerplate, leftist boilerplate. And I think it's also fair to point out it's not just white parents who are upset with critical race theory or racialized curricula. I mean, I know that he wants to frame it that way while accusing everyone else of being, you know, racist or in some sort of race related panic and lying. But 
That is the type of thing that I would expect to hear out of the Democratic bubble. It's what Terry McAuliffe is saying on the campaign trail basically every day. And I, I guess that is what Larry Sabato has decided to throw his lot in with. And it's, it's well, sad, I think, it's I think sad what to Larry watch. is seeing is that, that his own group's analysis is probably correct, that the race has, has indeed tilted toward Yunkin, who's been gaining steadily. There are now three polls out, contemporary current polls that have him in lead by two of them by a two-point margin, and the other one, a Fox News poll, has him by an eight-point margin. So the race has swung in his direction. It may not prove to be enough. It's possible that uh, that um, in the end, that, that you know, Virginia's been a pretty reliably blue state for some time now. It may turn out that, uh, that, that McAuliffe can pull it out. Honest, if they, if they, you know, if they get a good turnout, but I, you know, it doesn't look that way right now. Yeah, we'll get Josh Krasauer's take on that coming up later this hour. Who's also, I think, a very sharp political analyst who really yeah, knows very Virginia. Very fair-minded. So. He is. He really is, and that's why we yeah, love having him here Josh on the show. Josh is one of the best. He is, and and we will get his prediction for tomorrow coming up later this hour. Britt, I did tease the national numbers, so let's take a peek at this. A lot of ooing and eyeing yesterday at the NBC News poll, and I think understandably so, where you've got 71% saying the country's headed in the wrong direction. Job approval now of President Biden is deep underwater, 12 points underwater, especially bad among independents. You look at some of the areas of you know specific issues or characteristics on competence he's at 37 percent on uniting the country he's at 28 percent those were two of the central claims and sort of like raison d'etre of his campaign and that's not what the american people are experiencing uh we can go issue by issue here they asked broadening it out not from just Biden himself, but just on the two parties, which party would do a better job on fill in the blank, getting things done? Republicans up by 13 points. The economy, Republicans up 18 points. Uh, I saw that's the highest number they've ever had in this poll going back to the early 90s. National security, Republicans up 21. Crime, Republicans up 22 points. Inflation up 24 points. Border security Border up 27 sec- points. My goodness, Brett. I mean, this is an NBC ter- News poll, and it dropped like a ter- These are legitimately terrible numbers for the Democrats. Um, we could be on the cusp here of a real Republican wave that will that will you know carry over uh, into the midterms to where you could have a wipeout that would that would give the Re- Republicans control of both houses of Congress and God knows what else. Um, and, and I think that uh, the, it's fair to say that Biden has time over the next year to turn this, these numbers around. But having time doesn't mean that he's anywhere near capable of doing it. Joe Biden has, has, has and has long had very severe weaknesses as a national politician. And they showed up in all of his presidential campaigns, including this one, until he was bailed out by the Democrats in South Carolina and went, and went ahead and won the nomination. People say all the time to me that there's no way Joe Biden got 81 million votes. I would agree with that in this sense. I think, I think the antipathy to Donald Trump uh, was what got the 81 million votes for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. It was an anti-Trump vote, not not particularly a pro-Biden vote. And now the party is stuck with the man that it that it nominated to try to head off Bernie Sanders, whom they feared would drive them to defeat even against Trump. So now we're seeing the the, the cold reality of what Biden is. He's never been that smart. Um, 
some would say he's never been smart at all. He's a very, he's always been a very amiable, likable kind of guy, friendly and outgoing, which served him well in the Senate, where that 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 quality has been prized over the years. Hard not to like him, um, but he's weak. He's always been weak, and now and now he's senile, and it is showing. Britt, I want to ask you about something that happened just a short while ago this afternoon. Senator Joe Manchin came out, and with bated breath, the press awaited his pronouncement. And he really uh, laid down the law to a certain extent on the Build Back Better agenda here for Biden. He said, it's time to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Do not hold that hostage. That's not going to help win my vote over enough of the political games. And by the way, looking at the big reconciliation bill, that one point seven five trillion is a made up number. There's gimmicks. It's smoke and mirrors. There's it's not real. And I have real concerns about that, especially uh, when we're looking at the debt and inflation. This was not what the White House was hoping to hear. It's not what Democratic leaders were hoping to hear. And it comes right on the heels, Brent of an ABC News poll that I mentioned earlier in the show where they asked people about this Biden Democrat-only spending bill. Would this help you? Would this hurt you? Would it make no difference? The numbers were 32 percent said the spending bills would hurt them. 25 percent, one in four, said it would help them. Two in 10 said it would make no difference and everyone else wasn't sure. Not a great day for the Biden agenda on Capitol Hill. No, not only that, but in his, let's consider just the practical reality of what he's talking about. He's saying that until these numbers are, are uh, that are being advanced as what the bill is, what it would cost, and how much is paid for, has been certified by the Congressional Budget Office. That is to say, until it's scored, which is a normal thing you do with a big budget bill. You, you, right. you, know, you send it to the Congressional Budget Office, and the Congressional Budget Office issues, issues an opinion on what the actual numbers are. And Manchin obviously suspects, and I have no doubt that he's right, that when the when the CBO looks at this, they're not going to come back and say, "Yeah, this is 1.75 trillion, and it's fully paid for." Um, they'll, they'll come back and say it's much more than that, and it's not fully paid for. Which means that at that point, it, you know, Manchin couldn't not then support it. Which means it's dead. And it could be, it just could be, if these Democrats in the House refuse to allow that uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill to pass uh, by continuing to tie it to the much larger bill, uh, this other bill, the, the, uh, the social spending bill, that they end up with nothing, which would be, in political terms, an utterly disastrous outcome. Do you think that the overall agenda is in some actual peril at this point? Well, it's kind of hard to believe that they won't figure out a way at some point to get something. Yeah. But I don't see Manchin and Christian Christian Cinema and others, Kirsten Cinema and others, who uh, who they may be speaking for, but who are in the shadows. Um, I don't see them budging on this. And these and these and the, and the lefty Democrats in the House who are holding this whole thing up uh, by insisting that these two bills have to go together and they have to contain this, that, and the other thing. They they've been remarkably stubborn. You know, Pelosi put the squeeze on them at the end of last week to try to get get the uh, infrastructure bill acted on, and she failed, which she doesn't often do. And, she, and then she came into the into the House gallery, the radio TV gallery over there, and, and delivered herself of this sort of bizarre statement about it, uh, and then walked off without answering the question of whether she was going to call for a vote, which in the end she did not do. So they are not there yet, and they may not get there. I mean, I think you have to figure they'll come up with something. But at this point, who knows what? Well, and 
Biden also went down there again, right? And and the expectation reportedly was for him to whip the vote and to deliver the result, and he did neither. Well, they that they thought he was going to do. They thought he was going to come down and openly ask for them to vote for the for for the infrastructure bill. He didn't do that, and they were just astonished, you know. And Biden, I, that's the trouble with Biden. He does he does things he should not, and doesn't says things he should not, and then he doesn't do things he should. And that's a good. But him, you're a longtime Virginia voter. You talked about that race. We were talking about it at the beginning of the segment. Feel free to hedge a little bit, but based on everything that you know and have seen in Virginia and just nationally at the moment, do you have a prediction for us about tomorrow in the race? I don't. I don't do predictions. Never have. But I would say this. I think. You know, the, the the very fact that this has turned into a tight race is an, is in itself an upset because no one earlier this year thought there was any chance that this this novice political uh, figure, uh, never a businessman, Glenn Youngkin, whom nobody would really ever heard of, would be giving the very well-known and generally popular Terry, in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, uh, the race of his life. And the f- fact that that is happening shows you the Democratic fortunes have declined. Um, and I think Youngkin has the momentum at the moment. You know, the question is whether it will be enough to carry him over, with, whether he will get election day turnout sufficient to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I think there's a very in good a, chance it will. In a D-plus-10 state from just a year ago. Britt Hume, senior political analyst here at Fox News. Always appreciate your time, sir. Looking forward to getting you back here in the coming days. Nice talking to you, Guy, as always. Likewise, you bet. Britt Hume on The Guy Benson Show. We'll step aside. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening to The Guy Benson Show. So this is just crossing from the McAuliffe campaign. This is how he's closing out his campaign, talking about schools, of course, and I guess he's come up with a new problem in Virginia school. It's not critical race theory. He says that's a myth and a racist one. The real problem is too many white teachers. Cut 41. And I promise you, we've got to diversify our teacher base here in Virginia. 50 percent of the students in Virginia schools, K-12, 50 percent are students of color. And yet 80 percent of the teachers are white. We all know what we have to do in a school to make everybody feel comfortable in school. So let's diversify. So here's what I'm going to do. We'll be the first state in America. If you'll teach for five years here in Virginia in a high demand area, that it be geographic or coursework, we will pay room, board and tuition at any college, any university, any HBCU here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Big cheers for the uh, for the spending there. But it's the first part of that clip that's so interesting. He said, well, we've got 50 percent roughly of students in Virginia are students of color, but 80 percent of the teachers are white. So we've got to diversify in order to make people feel comfortable in school. Is he saying that white teachers make students uncomfortable? Now, remember, this is a guy, Terry McAuliffe, who is over these last few days screaming to anyone who will listen that Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, he's the one who's racializing the race, making this campaign about race, blowing dog whistles, being divisive. 
on racial issues by pointing out critical race theory is a thing and it offends a lot of parents, white, Hispanic, black, Asian and others. That is racist. That's a dog whistle. That is divisive, says Terry McAuliffe. And then he turns around and basically proves the point of Glenn Youngkin by obsessing over checking certain boxes and having, what, certain quotas based on skin color when it comes to teachers in Virginia, because there's just too many white folks. What does he propose doing to the excess white teachers? Do they need to go? I'd love to hear him expand on that. What a curious way to close out a campaign where you're accusing the other guy of sowing racial division. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. That is the website, and the podcast is free every single day. We are joined now by Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal and a Fox News radio political analyst, and he was just called by Britt Hume minutes ago on this show, one of the best. Josh, welcome back. <laughs> well, that's high praise coming from Brit, and, you know, I grew up watching Brit, Brit Hume, and, and I really, it's, it's, it's great to hear that. Thanks, Brit. You are, I think, a pretty sharp analyst of the national scene. You also have a passion for Virginia politics. You're from Virginia. Huge, huge race tomorrow. We've been talking about it offline a little bit. Uh, you have been looking at this. You've got sources in both campaigns. There's public polling. There's enthusiasm on the ground. There's history. Uh, there's a lot of different factors here. Give us a broad picture right now of how you see this race shaping up at the moment. I'll ask for your prediction later, but just what are the dynamics that you think are important for people to look at as they assess what might arrive tomorrow? Yeah, Guy, we've talked about the history of Virginia elections, and and since Virginia holds its governor's race a year after the presidential election, there's always a natural tendency for Virginia Virginia voters to want to check the party in power in, in Washington. So that's happened in almost every election, with the one exception of McAuliffe in 2013, going back to the 1970s. So what, what you're seeing in this election is you have that fundamental dynamic, and you also have what's going on in Washington with the economy uh, struggling, the inflation being a major concern for voters. Uh, the, 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 the Democratic lean of the state has all been wiped out and more because of Biden's own struggles in, in Washington and trying to get anything passed and also going a little more to the left than I think most Virginia voters are comfortable with. So you've got an environment where the headwinds are in favor of Republicans, in favor of Glenn Youngkin. And, and to be, you know, Youngkin is the type of Republican candidate that does well in Virginia, a business guy, someone who's not uh, from the Trump wing of the party as much as the McAuliffe campaign has been trying to make that case. Uh, he, he was uniquely capable of, of riding what is a, a, a positive environment for Republicans because he's not threatening to the, the moderate suburbanites who voted for Mitt Romney in 2012, but also has kept, you know, really to touch on issues from education to the economy uh, that are really resonating with the base, the Trumpian base as well. So this is sort of a perfect storm going on where you've got the national environment favoring Republicans, the local statewide environment favoring Republicans, and the fact that Republicans nominated a pretty solid candidate who's capable of taking advantage of, of, of that dynamic. The poll, this is a been, close race. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say uh, the polls show a close race, and there's a new poll out today, Youngkin plus two. 
Uh, that's sort of in line with what I've been hearing. But turnout is going to dictate this thing tomorrow. We know that the Yunkin folks need to really turn out and overwhelm the early vote lead that the Democrats have built. Uh, and I can ask you about how likely that is. But what you're describing there, Josh, that all sounds good. I know I have a lot of Republican and conservative friends who are excited, but also very nervous, right? Because it feels possible and they've just gotten burned so many times, especially in Virginia. Republicans have come close and then they lose. They haven't won a statewide race in 12 years. It really takes not just the perfect storm that you're talking about, but actual execution to make it happen, right? It would be sort of impressive to say, okay, Biden won this state by 10, and Yunkin made up a, a big chunk of that, and he only lost by one or two, right? That that could portend bad things for Democrats across the country, given how blue Virginia is. It's another thing to take a D plus 10 state or a Biden plus 10 state and turn it into a victory for Republicans. How likely in your mind is that? And what are you what are you taking into consideration as you start to craft your analysis and start to think about the prediction that I'm going to ask you here in a few minutes? What goes into that prediction? Right. So I think it's very possible, likely even, that Yunkin uh, can win this thing. He probably holds the advantage in, in the final stage of this race. In fact, Larry Sabato's crystal ball out of UVA now mm-hmm. has the race as a, as a lean toward towards Glenn Youngkin, which I, is consistent with what what my own uh, analysis is. And you know, you you talked about the polls guy. We've talked about the fundamentals, but reporting go, goes into my my analysis as well. Uh, I, I've been to a lot of McAuliffe events. I've been to a lot of Youngkin events in the final couple of weeks of this race. You can see the the energy in, in 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 Republican jurisdictions and even in more Democratic jurisdictions in the state behind a, a Republican candidate, uh, behind Youngkin. I, I, I was struck that just this Saturday, the Youngkin campaign made stops in Alexandria, Virginia, which, mm-hmm. for those of you outside of the D.C. area, is one of the most Democratic parts of the state, voted 80 percent for, for Joe Biden last year, and also yeah. stopped in, in a couple of places in northern Virginia, Springfield, Chantilly, which also were very solidly Democratic in last year's presidential election. If you're if you're worried about the election, you don't you need to get your base out. You don't you don't go into bluest parts of the state uh, a few days before the election. But when you when you're a Republican campaigning in Alexandria and Springfield, it generally is a sign of confidence. We, you know, you so generally just haven't seen that in some time. Yeah, let me jump in on that, because I saw some of the images and the photos and the videos of him in Old Town Alexandria. Youngkin rolls in. He doesn't have anyone with him. It's not like he's got some famous, you know, outside surrogate. It's just him. And there are hundreds of people at 8 a.m. 8 a.m. on a Saturday in the bluest part of the state. And I was actually joking with uh, my husband. I said, look, I mean, I think this is a pretty impressive turnout considering how blue Alexandria is. You know, I'm rooting hard for Glenn Youngkin. I'm not sure I would show up to a Youngkin rally at 8 a.m. on a Saturday if it was taking place in my driveway. Like, you know, that that actually <laughs> you know takes some effort from people to show up. And they did. And one thing that struck me, though, is not the you know, people are saying, oh, It's not that many people. And, of course, you're going to have some Republicans in a place like Alexandria. It doesn't mean anything. I think what you just touched on is what is meaningful. The fact that the Yunkin people made a decision to hold that rally at all. Right. Time is a precious resource at the end of a campaign. They made this decision to go up on offense in a place like Alexandria. They're a disciplined, data driven campaign. They've been very strategic. Does the 
mere fact that that rally existed, that it even happened, does that suggest to you that they feel like their turnout models among their base are pretty good and they want to maybe, I don't know, run run up the score? I I mean, that seems awfully confident for a Republican in Virginia. There's always a rhyme and reason for why campaigns do things. And in Northern Virginia, in particular, the education issue has been been quite resonant, even in the bluest of, of the blue counties, because Alexandria schools were closed all of last year. Arlington schools were closed all of last year. I can tell you, being in this area, there were a lot of very liberal friends who were just had it up, up to here with the local school systems. So you know, I, I think what the Yunkin campaign sees is an opening, not to, you know, you know, totally remake the electorate in Alexandria, but there may right. be an ability to do significantly better than most Republicans do in typical governor's races. And, and they, the issue of school school officers in, in, in the city schools also really resonated in Alexandria to the point where there may be a Republican that wins a seat on the city on, on one of the city boards, city council. Uh, so there, there is something there. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in the Loudoun County numbers uh, on, on election night. But Fairfax right. and Alexandria and Arlington, just looking at the margins and how, how they compare to Trump's margins, the losing mar- big losing margins in 2020 is going to be very instructive. I'd also point out that McAuliffe's campaign strategy has also been very interesting to see in the closing days. Usually a winning campaign ends the, ends the race, trying to reach out to the persuadable voters, the, the moderate voters in the middle that still are making up their minds. Clearly, McAuliffe is still trying to get out the base, trying to appeal, you know, running a lot of Hail Mary, what I would call Hail Mary attack ads trying to really animate uh, fearful Democrats that Yunkin is going to be like Trump and, you know, ban books and, and so on and so forth. That is the type of strategy generally, in my, in my experience covering elections, is what a, losing, a campaign running from behind needs to, like, desperately get out their own voters to the polls. That's what they usually do. I, I kind of compare it to studying for a, a midterm a day before the test that you're not prepared and you just need to get as many, you know, you're just desperately scrambling. The they're cramming. They're, they're cramming. This is the cram session from Terry McAuliffe, which may be enough in a D plus 10 state, right? It's home cooking. It's a home game in a lot of ways in Virginia for the Democrats, for Terry McAuliffe. But uh, they're looking a little nervous. Both Virginia Democratic senators, U.S. senators have been making some noises the last two days that do not sound terribly optimistic uh, for their side. The Yunkin campaign is closing in Loudoun County tonight, which has been a huge battleground. The schools are, you know, issue number one out there. That horrible sexual assault situation, the cover up, uh, you know, really playing into that perfect storm with that horrible story. I think it's telling and very purposeful that the Yunkin people are going to conclude with their final rally this evening, late tonight in Loudoun County. I'm going to go check it out for myself. I'm going to observe and, and see what it's like on the ground because do you think so? Two quick predictions, Josh. We have about two minutes left. Number one, Loudoun County, is that a bellwether? What do you what are the numbers that you think Yunkin could or would need to pull in a place like Loudoun to win? And then big picture heading into tomorrow. What is your prediction? What happens when the res- uh, when the results come in and the race is called? So by definition, Loudoun is not a bell- bellwether because if you one of my good friends, uh, election analyst Dave Wasserman is put out a benchmark and what Yunkin needs to win in each of the counties to get a victory. And he only needs to lose Loudon by 14 points, according to, to Dave's estimate. So, I, I, you know, Yunkin said on the campaign trail he could win Loudon. Yeah. He even proclaimed he, he was up in Loudon County. So, I mean, if, 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 it's a, if it's a tie in Loudon, or even if he's down by a few points, I mean, that was a county that Biden won by 25 points. So, it, yes, it's, a, it, it's symbolic. It's significant. Um, but right. even if Yunkin loses Loudon, he can easily still win the governor's race. 
Um, you know, I, I, I would rather be Glenn Youngkin than Terry McAuliffe at, at, at this point. I, I would always rather be the candidate with momentum, the candidate that's moving faster up, upwards in the polls. Um, you know, I, it's a close race. You, you, you look at the polls, Sky, this is not, this is Virginia. It's a state that, that Biden won by 10 points. But clearly the momentum seems with Youngkin, and he seems to be, be achieving that inside straight that you need in terms of getting enough suburbanites, getting enough moderates, and rallying the base in the rural parts of the state to, to, to pull off uh, an upset victory here. So if you had to guess, and someone said, you know, just shook you awake in the middle of the night tonight, who wins tomorrow? You wake up and your prediction would be by a hair, Glenn Youngkin? Well, I, you know, the line, I would be Youngkin by three, I think, is sort of the line. And right. know, if you look at the average of polls and the, and the momentum, so that's, there you go. Yunkin by three. We shall see big election in the Old Dominion tomorrow. Josh Krasauer, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show from National Journal. Josh, good stuff. We'll see what happens. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show... Thank you very much for listening. We talked earlier a bit about polling, and it's been ugly. For President Biden, for the Democratic Party, the NBC News poll getting a lot of attention among politicos yesterday in particular. I mean, just gruesome numbers. I know we're a year out from the midterms. I mean, if this is how the polls looked and the midterms were this week, Right. If it were a year from now, I think we would confidently be talking about a red wave. We'd be debating how big the wave would be. Right. How many seats do the Republicans gain in the House? Do the Republicans gain the Senate? I think that ends up being probably a likelihood. Now there's a a year. Right. There's a long time between now and then. They always call it an eternity in politics. It's true. But another data point that I found very interesting from the fresh survey, it's a national survey, NPR, PBS, Marist. They asked Democrats, right? So this is not the electorate. These are Democratic voters. Looking ahead to 2024, do they want Joe Biden to run for reelection? Do they want him to be the nominee again? Or do they want someone else? Here are the results as of this weekend. 36% of Democratic voters say they want Biden again. 36, just over one third of the Democratic electorate seems enthusiastic and excited about Joe Biden running again. 36%, 44% say they want someone else. So that's a plurality. By eight points, Democrats already It's only 2021. We're not even a year into this presidency. Already a plurality of Democratic voters are telling pollsters, we want someone else in 2024. 20% remain unsure. Those are not robust data points if you are Joe Biden. I've said it for a while now. I would not be shocked, and I might even be slightly betting on Joe Biden not running for a second term. He's about to turn 79. I don't think, even if his political fortunes improve, which they might, who knows, 
long way between now and 2024, the idea that his sharpness or acuity is going to improve seems unlikely, just the way time works, right? And then the question becomes, let's say this buzz intensifies. Let's say Republicans have a good year next year. Things aren't looking great moving toward 2024. You're going to start to hear that chatter get louder and louder. Then there'll be, you know, internal discussions. Is he going to announce he's a one-termer only? Will you have people in his world, in his orbit at the White House, already positioning themselves to run for president? Would that undermine his presidency, right? I think there could be some really fascinating dynamics should this type of number, this type of outcome continue to play out in the coming months and years with a lot of potential acrimony over there on the left. And then if, 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 if he decides, you know what, one term is enough, then what? Is the heir apparent? the elected vice president of the United States and her favorability ratings that are worse than Biden's, her phoniness, her terrible instincts. Well, at least she has an amazing knack for being an inspirational campaigner on the trail. She is so good on the stump. We played this earlier just in case you forgot This was Kamala Harris for Terry McAuliffe in Virginia over the weekend. Cut 16. Let her tell everybody, you know, to vote tomorrow. (laughs) Nothing like saying you want to meet me tomorrow. What you what you doing tomorrow? You got any plans tomorrow? Tomorrow's a good day. It's going to be a good day. But the point is. (laughs) Yeah. Is that is that who's up next? Is that the woman on deck, Democrats? Ooh, if I were a Democrat looking at this right now, I might want a full-blown reboot, right? Control-Alt-Delete and just start over. But it may not be that simple. She's the vice president. Identity politics come into play. I just think it's a way too early, hilariously premature little conversation, but this Nugget from the NPR PBS Marist poll caught my attention and may turn into a louder narrative over time. We'll keep tabs on it. It's the Guy Benson Show. Much more to come. The final hour coming up with Howie Kurtz joining us in studio. Don't go anywhere. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on this Monday on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, our website, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day should you miss a moment. 
as the show airs live. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And the happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. It's good. Had some over the weekend. In fact, introduced some friends in Illinois to the Long Drink. It's sold everywhere in Illinois. You can log on to thelongdrink.com. You can see a map of where it's sold near you. You just plug in the zip code. That's what we did. Nice and easy. And it's delicious. Thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. We are joined in studio by Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern, host of the hit podcast Media Buzz Meter. Howie, great to see you. It's been a while. And I put on a jacket and tie just for this meeting. Yeah, you Usually dressed I'm up for radio. Sweats. <laughs> that has been a transition, hasn't it? A big one, a big one. I actually would wonder, before we get into yeah. some of our other topics, how much that discussion is happening around media circles, both nationally and at the local level. A lot of reporters, journalists, even on-air people got accustomed to doing even broadcasts from their houses. It's you a great commute. It is a great commute, and now things are starting to reach a new equilibrium, not just on the air, but for a lot of different industries. Some people aren't going back at all. Mm -hmm. That's not really much of an option, I would say, especially in television. But I feel like we may not go 100% back to the way things used to be. It might be something of a hybrid moving forward. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I I think particularly in television, but even sitting here with you, there's no substitute for being able to look somebody in the eye and read the body language and all that. On the other hand, we all got to see what people's houses look like, and that was a nice voyeuristic episode. Yeah, there was a whole Twitter account devoted to rating people's right. backgrounds. Who had the best pineapple. Yes, although that guy would turn out to be like pretty partisan, so a lot of it was just a score based yeah. on whether he Which liked it. liberals had the best part, pineapple. Yeah, what well, you had to say. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> I want to start with a story that we covered pretty heavily on Friday's show. I wrote about it at townhall.com, got picked up on Drudge, so got a lot of clicks Friday and through the weekend. It was this episode in Virginia, in the governor's race, where five younger people showed up at a Glenn Youngkin event, a Republican who's running for governor there. They were dressed up as sort of tiki torch white nationalists, although one of them was black. So that was an early indication to me that perhaps this was not on the up and up. The second I saw the photo, I said, oh, this is obviously a Democratic troll, an ugly one, but this is a Democratic troll. But the Democrats in the state and the McAuliffe campaign Instantly, they all picked it up and treated it like it was real. And I said, there's no chance this is real. I said, I'll bet $1,000 this is fake. These are the Democrats behind it. After we got off the air on Friday, the Lincoln Project claimed responsibility for this, you know, sort of using that parlance. But there were Democratic activists connected to the Virginia Democratic Party who were the people who got dressed up basically in these disgusting Halloween costumes. The media angle for you is, number one, Media outlets that did cover this at all overwhelmingly locked on to the Lincoln Project aspect and said, oh, well, this was a Republican group or an anti-Trump Republican group. To me, the Lincoln Project is just a left-wing Democratic group at this point. They actively oppose every Republican they can find. So I think that that's not really an accurate way of portraying them. And then more broadly speaking, to me, it's the most watched race in the country right now. This was a really significant dirty trick with a racial component and all this stuff, the coverage overall did not reach a level that I think it would have if the parties had been reversed. It was just sort of like a Twitter spat as opposed to, wow, look at what's happening down in Virginia. Do you agree with both of those premises and what are your overall thoughts on what we saw? I'd go even further. This was a monumentally stupid move. 
by the Lincoln Project and anybody associated with this racially divisive stunt. What, what did these geniuses think was going to happen? Nobody was going to find out. They put these guys up to it. Or if it was exposed, uh, the, the left would say, boy, that was really what Terry McAuliffe needed for his flagging campaign. It was just absolutely stupid. And I think the media, which loved the Lincoln Project because it was anti-Trump, and then maybe didn't love it so much when it turned out uh, one of the co-founders was a sexual predator. And they, um, and they knew about it and they covered it up. Yeah, and there's questions yeah. about where all the money but, went. But and- the press has given the Lincoln Project and whatever Dems were involved in this a total pass on this. Either didn't cover it, buried it, or, oh, isn't this interesting that this stunt took place? Uh, when in fact, uh, it's reprehensible, uh, you know, happening in Charlottesville. And I guess the nominal idea was to tie Glenn Youngkin to Donald Trump by reminding people what Donald Trump said in Charlottesville in 2017. Uh, backfired big time. And even the Washington Post, for which this is a home state race, um, kind of played it down. And you know, if this had been done by pro-Trump Republicans, yes. it would have been front page news, top of the newscast, and it would have gone on for days, not half a news cycle. Well, and a bunch of Republicans being asked, will they condemn what happened here? And instead, it was just sort of this strange curiosity, mostly among very online people on Twitter. It didn't really break through right. because the gatekeepers, the journalists decided, you know what, let's not have this one break through. On this point, too, Howie, and I got into this a little bit on Friday's show, at a recent rally in Arlington, Virginia, a very blue area of Virginia, Joe Biden, the president, came across the river. He did an event, and he basically tied Yunkin to the January 6th rioters, saying sometimes extremism comes in the form of rage-filled mobs storming the Capitol, and sometimes it comes with a sweater vest and a smile, which was, to me, a, a really gross attack. Here we have the Democratic Party with their friends and allies in the Lincoln Project, like Democratic aides, Democratic operatives in the Lincoln Project working together to take the memory of Charlottesville and what happened in Charlottesville and use that as a club to beat Glenn Youngkin. I think both of these comparisons are extremely unfair. And I also think that the Democrats have spent a lot of time and many in the press have spent a huge amount of time saying – January 6th was a monumentally important day. This is something that should be seared in our memory. This can never happen again. They focused on it a lot. I agree with a fair amount of that sentiment. Uh Charlottesville, another example, you know, like really ugly stuff in this country. And here we have in the last few weeks of the campaign, the Democratic Party taking both of those, you might argue, sort of almost sacred moments in dark ways, of course. And they've used them in this very cheap, tawdry way to launch extremely hyperbolic, I think, unjust attacks to try to win a campaign. I wonder if this will undermine in many Americans and news consumers' eyes the seriousness of those of those events if the people who keep talking about how very serious they are then use them the way and exploit them the way that they have. Yeah, I just think that half, perhaps more than half of Terry McAuliffe's campaign is to tie Youngkin to Trump. Trump has endorsed him, but he hasn't actually appeared with him. Youngkin seems to be on a tightrope where he wants Trump's support, but he doesn't want to be tied too closely to him, which makes sense in a purple state like Virginia. But when you start, this is a, a trick that some uh, in the liberal media use as well, where you say, well, if you support Trump, you have to denounce him for the big lie. And if you denounce him for the big lie, you have to blame him for January 6th. And ultimately, you somehow Glenn Youngkin, who, by the way, is a guy I live right across the river from. Uh, the Commonwealth, uh, who most people had never heard of before he got into this race. So it's a, it has the mechanism of a tremendous upset against a former governor and DNC chairman. Uh, and Youngkin has not taken the bait. And I think that's been frustrating to the Dems. I want to ask you about a media ethics question involving the Wall Street Journal. And they had published the editorial page, the editorial branch had published an op-ed or a letter to the editor 
uh, a missive from former President Trump making a bunch of claims about the 2020 election. And we've heard them before. He's rehearsed them many times. Uh, They are very short on actual factual evidence that would back them up. And in fact, some of the claims that he has made over time have been, I would say, overtly debunked by factual information. But he went out and they published it, him making a bunch of claims about 2020. And they've come under fire for doing so. Now, the editorial board wrote a pretty significant editorial basically refuting what he said. The next day. The next day. They've published a bunch of letters to the editor from their readers, uh, making it very clear that they were unhappy with this decision and responding to the former president. What we've heard from some quarters of the media is it is unacceptable and indefensible that they published this piece from Trump in the first place, considering that it was not – backed by fact in some cases, and that what they did in response afterwards was just sort of window dressing or damage control. What do you think of that decision? Because, you know, here's a former president of the United States who calls up your editorial room and says, hey, I would like you to publish something. Arguably, it's newsworthy. You don't have to give him a platform, but not to give a former president a platform would be also kind of an extraordinary thing. What do you make of the journal's decision on sort of each step of this? Guy, it was a letter to the editor. And yes, it contained a lot of the false claims specifically about Pennsylvania. Uh, but the idea that media would go so – I can't say the word bad, I know but what crazy. You're about to say. <laughs> yeah, would go so haywire. Let yeah. me clean this all right, up. All right. All right. I, I, simply because the journal published this as the opinion of Donald Trump responding to an earlier editorial strikes me as you know, they, they know it's, like it's not enough that he's not on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. He shouldn't be anywhere. He shouldn't get any space, any time to, to publish this at all. Now, I think it probably would have been better from the journal's point of view had a response run maybe the same day and not the next day. But in that uh, uh, pretty scathing editorial, the journal went after the media clerics, the high priests of media dumb, and said that um, in attempting to censor Trump, in other words, to say he shouldn't have been published as a letter writer, um, they're just adding to his popularity. And I think so. In other words, they kind of hit back at two different camps. Right. Trump for saying the things he said and the media for making this into some kind of Armageddon when it really should be routine. It just shows you how many in the media really do believe that Donald Trump shouldn't be given any platform whatsoever. Yeah, well, I mean, it's going to be very awkward if he decides to run for president again, which I think there's a decent chance that he will in 2024. What are they going to do? Not cover a presidential candidate, right? This is... Yeah, this came up on my show yesterday and somebody said, we got to be very careful in deciding how to cover him. I'll tell you how. You cover the hell out of him if he's running for his old job to win back the White House. Uh, that doesn't mean you don't fact check him. It doesn't mean you don't take him on over the stolen election and, and anything else. But the idea that we should just put him in some kind of box and, and he's persona non grata, I mean, we don't get to decide that. Not if you're, uh, if you're a real journalist. You don't get to decide that he's just going to be suppressed. That's not our job. It also doesn't work, right? It backfires. It doesn't work. The people who like him say, see, the media, we know how biased they are. Right. Uh, They don't want anything to do with Donald Trump. Uh, And by the way, I I get his missives every day in my inbox. Right. It's not like he doesn't have some access to Yeah, no, the the emails come in a lot. Yeah. Uh, Fast and furious sometimes. Like, oh, here's the sixth one. But that's his form of communicating. But he has other ones as well. And I just think it's an interesting little media kerfuffle where – we get into this question of deplatforming, what constitutes an appropriate piece to publish or not. And we've seen some of these battles on different fronts relatedly in recent weeks and months in particular, because it seems like some of the ethics in the media are shifting and sort of 
you have to ask yourself. I'm not saying these are like easy answers to some mm-hmm. of these questions, but I think generally the position of most journalists, at least in the past, would have been when in doubt, publish the speech and then debate it. Right. As opposed to when in doubt, suppress speech. But as you know, in 2020, journalists really were kind of campaigning against Donald Trump and for Joe Biden. Of course. Journalists who I respected and who always had had careers as being kind of trying to be down the middle, uh, give the other side a fair shake. It just became so blatant. And um, the question is, how do you do? Can you even climb back from that? I mean, Joe Biden's getting some tough press now because he's made a lot of mistakes and his polls are dropping. Uh, but if Donald Trump does come back, and I agree with you, I think there's a very good chance he runs again. The Republican nomination is sitting there for the asking. Um, the press is going to be on trial in terms of the questions of fairness. Uh, they got tossed out the window, particularly in last year's campaign. Well, I mean, I feel like the verdict's already in, though. We saw what they did in 2020. I don't know why they would act any better or any differently in 2024. Uh, I think a lot of them are rooting for him to get in in a weird way because they miss him desperately. They miss him so much. And that's one of the reasons all these controversies get so much because we can talk about Trump. We don't have to talk about the Democrats still haven't passed the $2 trillion bill. We can talk about Trump. Trump is ratings. Trump is clicks. It's a love-hate relationship. It always has been. There's a lot of hate there. Yeah, hate love, maybe. (laughs) Hate love. Yeah, good idea. Lead with hate. Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz. It's every Sunday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. His podcast at foxnewspodcast.com is Media Buzz Meter. Great to see you, Howie. Thanks for dropping by. Great to see you in person. We will step aside. Be right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Last week, we had Dr. Marty McCary from Johns Hopkins here on the show. We were talking about natural immunity and how, for some reason, in the United States, we're sort of an outlier, as we are on child masking, for example, where apparently natural immunity for people who have recovered from COVID, it doesn't count. It's not good enough. Bill Maher, on his HBO show last week, made this point on Friday night. He had Chris Coons on, a Democratic senator. He brought this exact issue up in cut four. The world recognizes natural immunity. We don't. Because everything in this country has to go through the pharmaceutical companies. Natural immunity is the best kind of immunity. We shouldn't fire people who have natural immunity because they don't get the vaccine. We should hire them. Yes? If someone (laughs) tested having antibodies. Well, okay. Okay, so Coons kind of says yes there. I think that's important. I am pro-vaccine. I think even if you have natural immunity, getting the vaccine as well, that is what my doctor has recommended. But to discount natural immunity entirely when we have these mandates in place and people are losing their jobs or going on unpaid leave, I'm not sure why that makes sense. And I'm glad to hear Mar making the point. He also went on to talk about our masking insanity. I call it superstition in some cases. And he agrees. Cut 35. And just a little messaging. I mean, I see it all the time. I saw it driving in today. People outside alone walking with a mask. It's so stupid. It's 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 an amulet. Yes. You know, yes. Some, a charm people a wear around neck yes. to ward away evil exactly. spirits. It means nothing. It means nothing. I don't always agree with Bill Maher, obviously, but based Bill Maher, I'm loving it. And on a regular basis, he seems to really stand up and make his point to his audience, which obviously, which significantly leans to the left. But on the matter of critical race theory, for example, he was making a two-part point. 
But this is important because what I think a lot of people object to on CRT, that's a broad term, a broad umbrella about racial curricula and focusing and fixating and obsessing on race. And Bill Maher also is making it clear he's not on board for those excesses that are becoming, unfortunately, more and more commonplace, particularly in blue precincts. He says, no, thank you. This is also from Friday's show. Cut 36. That's what critical race theory means. If it means separating five-year-olds by race and telling some you're oppressors and the others you're the oppressed and giving up on a colorblind society and resegregation and racism is the essence of America, then I'm out. Well, I'm out too. And I think what you see on the left in some cases is they try to focus in on one particular somewhat esoteric academic concept taught in law schools that is technically known as critical race theory. And they want to zoom in on that granular level and say, well, if that specific thing is not being taught in public schools or to elementary school kids, then any concerns about this is just a big old lie. Or in fact, a racist lie is what Terry McAuliffe would say in Virginia. But critical race theory and its broader precepts and its toxicity and just the fixation on racialism and guilt and grievance and all of that, that is very much real. You can call it critical race theory. You can call it equity. You can call it wokeness, whatever it might be. And it will take more than just conservatives opposing it which is why I'm grateful that Bill Maher says what he says. Even though I have strong departures from his worldview on any number of issues, we need allies in combating wokeness, and he's one of them. So tip of the cap once again, (laughs) I know, to Bill Maher. On The Guy Benson Show, Happy Hour resumes after this break. The Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour. Monday, new week, new month on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Earlier in today's program, Britt Hume dropped by. We talked about a number of issues, including just a barrage of brutal polling numbers for President Joe Biden. Here's part of that analysis from our colleague, Britt Hume. I would like to talk about some polling numbers that have come out in the last 24 hours or so involving the Democratic Party the national scene, President Biden. Before I get to that, I do want to play for you a soundbite that just happened on one of our competitor networks. Larry Sabato, who is a longtime political observer, kind of for for many years, kind of like a conventional wisdom sort of guy, political analyst. He would look at races and they would say, "Okay, we're we're projecting that this race tilts to the red or this race tilts to the blue or what have you. And his group has just actually shifted the Virginia governor's race into leans Republican territory. That was today. In recent months, Mr. Sabato has sort of abandoned the position that he held for a long time, that of sort of a dispassionate analyst. And he's become much, much more partisan and combative. And uh, he's making it very clear he's a man of the left, sort of in the sort of in the mold of Keith Olbermann or something. He was asked about the Virginia race. I'm sure he's very unhappy that they shifted it to lean Republican. Here's what he said would be his way of explaining a potential Glenn Youngkin victory tomorrow in Virginia. Cut 40. The operative word is not critical and it's not theory. It's race. 
What a shock, huh? Race. That is what matters. And that's why it sticks. There's a lot of, we can call it white backlash, white resistance, uh, whatever you want to call it. It has to do with race. And so we live in a post-factual era anyway, Chris. This is a post-factual era. It doesn't matter that it isn't taught in Virginia schools. It's this generalized attitude that whites are being put upon, and we've got to do something about it, we being white voters. All right, Britt. Uh, there you heard it. Uh, there are ways to rebut that because it's actually in the well, documents that – go ahead. Well, speaking of post-factual, as he did, what about all the evidence that has been produced by Chris Rufo and others that show just the extent to which what is being taught in Virginia schools is inspired by and driven by critical race theory, a yep. term that comes up in the documents that uh, are used for teaching materials and to instruct teachers in the state. Of course, critical race theory, directly or indirectly, is being taught in Virginia schools, and parents are up in arms about it because it is itself a racist theory. Uh, and I would say that that uh, that if you're talking about post-factual, um, we're dealing here with a man who seems unacquainted with the full set of facts, which is very disappointing. I've known Larry for a long time. He's an old friend of mine. I've always thought had the greatest respect for the Institute of Politics that he created out of his own energy and imagination down there at UVA. It's been a great success, um, and it continues as his recent uh, um, and now, as the group's recent analysis of the Virginia race establishes, to do fairly neutral uh, political analysis. Um, but what's coming out of his mouth is amazing to me. I think, you know, he's one of these people, is a, and there's a very large number of them, who kind of reacted to Trump so strongly that, uh, that you know, their, their judgment of everything political has been distorted by it. And I fear that's what happened with Larry. Yeah, sort of uh, the the broken by Trump effect, and he was not this way for the longest time. Sort of milk toast, uh, you know, thoughtful. I wouldn't would say just... milk toast. He was he could be pretty edgy. Um, All right, but, but he's very but he's very good and a very good analyst, and one you could count on to see sort of all sides of the equation and balance them in a sensible way. He was interesting. This kind of stuff is just you know is not interesting. It's just boilerplate, leftist boilerplate. My full discussion with Brett Hume, senior Fox News political analyst. That's available online, GuyBensonShow.com. It's part of the free podcast. Every moment of every show for free on demand each day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. Halloween was last night. We had a fun time in our neighborhood. There's also a poll about parents and kids it's somewhat related. We'll get into all of that as soon as we return on The Guy Benson Show. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch, Monday edition on The Guy Benson Show. I saw this poll, came out just a few days ago, in which roughly half of parents, they were asked this question, would you leave your kids behind in coach on a flight if you got upgraded into first class, you got the upgrade, would you leave your kids behind? And about half of parents said yes. And I'm not a parent, not a parent yet, but to me it would be a question of how old are the kids. Right? If the kids are old enough to handle themselves and they don't need constant adult supervision, absolutely I would ditch them and coach and be up in first class. More of anything, more of everything. It's the Seinfeld episode. 
in that case, Elaine was left in coach. But I wouldn't have a problem with that. I think if it was a little kid, I mean, what's your option? Is going to like stick a four-year-old or something next to a stranger? Probably not. Producer Christine, are you a yes or a no on this? If you got upgraded with Megan and you're on the flight and Megan didn't make the upgrade list, are you just like, sayonara, girl, I'll see you in the terminal when we're done here? You know what? I, I, I thought about this for a while because, you know, above everything else, besides being the best booker there is and producer extraordinaire, an amazing friend to everybody around me, <laughs> um, a wonderful wife, I am a mother first. And I think I speak for all moms when I say, of course, I would go to first class if I got upgraded. Megan will be fine. She'll meet some lovely people in coach. Uh, what's the the saying from one of those movies? There's more of a sense of a community back there. And I think she would be completely fine. Um, a little pat on the head. Good luck, Megan. Mommy's going to be up here. The mama's juice is free. Exactly. I'll see you when we land. I mean, but Megan is also, what, nine years old now? So she, I think, is of an age where it's okay. Now, she can't technically fly on her own without a bunch of paperwork. She would be an unaccompanied minor. So there might be people who could judge you on the flight being like, wait, that's your mom. Where is she going? But Megan, in my mind, you are the one who needs supervision, not Megan. Megan would be fine. Cookie would be the one more likely to need the influence of Megan to restrain perhaps some of your excess in flight. Is that an exaggeration? Because I'm not sure it is. It's not. Unfortunately, my husband said this weekend, we're only a few years away from Megan giving me advice, saying, Mom, calm down. Like, chill. It's okay. Oh, no. As soon as she gets her permit to drive, she's going to be your DD. You're like, oh, I got a built-in designated driver. You're going to force her to go to college within driving distance of Eyesore Lane so that she can come and pick you up over at the neighborhood bar, pour you into the back seat whenever necessary. I think that's going to be a big, uh, a big plus, a feature of being a mother for you. And that's, what, only seven, seven years away, if I recall correctly, in New Jersey. So you're fully on board. At what age would you not? Right. At what age would you feel too guilty leaving her on her own? Well, I mean, Six? this is no, this is the line right here. I don't think any younger I would leave her in coach. But I think we're crossing. I don't know. I would say like nine, ten. If you have a mature kid, it really depends upon your kid. I have a question for kid. you. Not yeah. that you would ever be in coach, but just say you were in coach. I'm in coach all the time. Oh, really? I'm usually in coach. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. I get upgraded sometimes. I will pay occasionally, especially internationally, if I need to get some sleep for a red-eye flight. But most flights, I'm absolutely in coach. Okay, so you are in a row of three with a child, a parent, and then yourself. The flight attendant comes over to the parent and says, ma'am, sir, you've been upgraded. So that parent leaves. Are you annoyed that you're now stuck with the kid by yourself? Yes, probably. Would you say something? Um, I guess it depends on how disruptive the kid was being. Because what are you supposed to do at that point? Right? Pretty- the kid starts melting down. They're like, well, you know, and the, the fastened seatbelt sign is on. Or they're, you know, freaking out or worried or maybe they're a nervous flyer. I think you really, really have to know your kid very well to make that call as a parent. I don't think it's just like an automatic, you know, see you later decision. Now, have I left my husband and coach when I've been upgraded from time to time? Yes, I have. That has happened. Now, I don't do it on purpose, right? I'm not like, oh, let me force him into economy class and I'm going to go live it up elsewhere. But sometimes these things just happen. I will occasionally give up an upgrade to someone else. I've given it to a service member 
from time to time. I've given it to my mom once or twice. But generally, those precious upgrades, especially on a long flight, oh, that's like, that's what you put in all the miles for. That's why you get, you know, all the loyalty points. It's for those exciting moments where they call your name right before boarding to give you that new printed boarding pass with the new seat assignment. Oh, it's great. By the way, before we run out of time here, Christine, Halloween was yesterday on a Sunday. What was your schedule yesterday? Was someone home to give candy to kids while someone else accompanied Megan for her trick-or-treating? Or did you all go trick-or-treating? And if kids came to your house while you guys were gone, tough luck for them, no candy. What was your plan? So don't forget, I had a party yesterday, a Halloween party. So that started around 1 o'clock, I think, until about 4.30. And honestly, during— It was the pregame. Yeah, yes. There was pizza. There was wine. There was sangria. There was beer. Did I mention the wine? There was was a lot of stuff happening for the adults. And then the kids were just playing around in their costumes and running around. It was was fun. Then about 4.30, we all decided to, you know, start going trick-or-treating. I have to say, we just left a a, a huge bowl of candy, and I had Megan— draw a picture and it said uh take two or i'll haunt you meaning don't take more right so we left that out there and that that lasted through the night we didn't have a ton of trick-or-treaters and i have to say it was very disappointing not a lot of people answered their door yesterday so you know we would go three four doors doors before somebody would answer and the kids were kind of getting annoyed so after about an hour and a half they all were done they said can we just go back home said sure so more wine was to be had Oh, so you had a post-game show as well, sounds like. You had a pre-game party and the post-game show. Well, and then don't forget the, the walking. There was, uh, we were happy while we are walking. Oh, were you drinking while you were not saying. I'm not saying that. I, I did not say that. Do they not have an open container law? And I don't. I should know the laws. I, sh- <laughs> I should know I these laws. Lane, you, I, I'm, I will give you a spoiler alert. You are not allowed to do that. I, oh. Unless you're like in... New Orleans on Bourbon Street or something. It's that's not a thing in your neighborhood, Christine. Huh. So And I didn't do a it. A little bit of a of a scoff law last night. This boozy, boozy Christine was just sloshing around the neighborhood with with Megan who was just trying to get some candy. So what we did was we set up shop in our driveway outside. And our neighbors on both sides of us came and pulled up chairs like lawn chairs or porch furniture and we just sat there. We had a few drinks. We ordered in dinner, so we actually kind of had our dinner out there. We had three different buckets of candy, so one for each house basically. And the kids would come through and they would hit boom, boom, boom in like 10 seconds. They would get as much candy as they wanted and then move along. It was a very efficient thing for the children. And it was pretty busy. Adam is big into getting exact numbers, so he went back and was looking at our cameras and our security system and counted exactly the number of trick-or-treaters that we got. And it was more than I thought. We had, if I'm remembering correctly, we had 57 trick-or-treaters last night, which is a lot. And then at one point, he and I were going in to like finish up dinner and watch a little of the baseball game. And we had a bunch of leftover candy because it was just way too much was purchased. So we put out the bowl with a variety. We had little mini Snickers. We had little mini uh, Reese's Pieces, peanut butter cups. We had little mini, what is it, Mr. Good Bar? What is that one called? Something like that. One or two other options, Hershey's. And we did not have a sign. There was no sign that said only take one or only take two. We just put it out there. And then at the end of the night, a group of kids, probably like tweeners, like 11 or 12, they rolled up, saw the 
totally undefended bowl and just cleared us out. And I wasn't really mad about it because what were you going to do with all that candy? Like, there's more than enough candy. I don't really have a candy sweet tooth to begin with. So Adam was a little peeved at these kids. I'm like, what? You know, they're 11. And there's a whole bowl of candy that's just sitting there. And there's no rule that's been stipulated. Maybe it's not the best look ever, but I, I didn't really have too much of a problem with it. Thoughts on those ethics, Christine? No, I, I think you're right. I, I, you're leaving it out there and you're not giving rules. It's going to go. It's just the way it is. And like you said, you're not a sweet person at all. So nope. Nope. Um, you don't. Wait, did you give out Hershey Kisses? Just like a single Hershey Kiss? No, they were like little um, Hershey bars. Oh, okay. Like see, just little chocolate bars, like the milk chocolate. See, uh, our home, we gave out the, we had the Haribo uh, variety pack. Oh, gummy bears. Yeah. Oh, everything though. There was all different Haribos. It was okay. a success. No, that, that does sound good. And I know we're not the house with the full size, which is what everyone was excited about. When I was a kid, you figured out which houses would give out the full size candy bars. There was one house that was like up the hill from us that would give out king size Snickers. And that was a must go. I mean, that's just a flex. That's a flex. If that's what you're doing, like that is extremely impressive. The kids overall were nice. You had some very cute costumes. You had some homemade costumes. You had the store-bought costumes. You had a lot of kids who were extremely shy, did not want to say a word, did not want to say trick or treat, did not want to look at you, barely would say thank you. And the parents were like forcing them to say these things. Yep. They just wanted their candy in their little bag and move on. And so to me, I don't really know what what the fun of that would be. I like saying trick or treat. I liked having very minimal but quick interactions with the homeowners. You wouldn't want to have these extended dialogues. Oh, what are you? And then they start asking more questions. No, let's get it and move along. But having some eye contact and a basic trick or treat and thank you, I don't think that's too much to ask. In my opinion, you're 100 percent right. And I have to say the group I was with the same thing. We were all the moms are screaming, say thank you, say trick or treat, turn around, go back, look them in the eye, say thank (laughs) you. You know, because especially by Megan's age, they should have basic manners. So they should know they should know. And it's a good way to teach them. But I have to say, we saw so many kids. They wouldn't say a word. They wouldn't even look at you. Just mute. I went. I'm, I'm here as a mute. Maybe they're here as a mime. They're going out. Trick-or-treating is a mime, although that would be very oh, triggering for you know, producer Christine. She got mugged and robbed by a mime in France. That's a real thing that happened. The one thing that made us all laugh, so we're sitting out there. I had a long drink in hand, and we're hanging out. It's a beautiful fall night. It's getting darker and darker, and it's toward the end of the night. So at this point, it is dark, and the house right across from us really does it up big with all the costumes and all the decorations, and they have a little creepy girl on a swing who giggles. Like, it is creepy. And... It's all lit up, so all the kids want to go there. Towards the end of the night, you heard a mother shouting at her kid. She's, I didn't hear the first part. She's like, if you do that, I am confiscating all of your candy. I'm like, all right, we've, we've come to the end of the evening, and we have a parent at the end of her rope. And I was like, well, maybe that's something that we have to look forward to down the line. Threats, threatening your kid. I feel like Megan isn't really one who needs too many threats. No, Megan actually went upstairs and divvied up her candy and gave me all the chocolate right away. She put it back in a bag and said, here, oh. Mommy, this is your stash. She's just a jewel. She's yeah, she just, just a complete gem. She, that was my favorite part, by the way, getting back and then taking inventory all over the floor of the living room. And the parents would decide how much you were allowed to eat. And I never really wanted to eat that much of it anyway. So I was a pretty easy kid. Not a big 
Halloween guy in general, but now we're in November. It is Thanksgiving month. It is go time. It is my favorite holiday coming up this month, and we do not look past a Thanksgiving at the Guy Benson Show. Even with Christmas coming, we don't look past a Thanksgiving. We got to go. Back here tomorrow, Election Day in Virginia, full coverage tomorrow and the next day of all things related to Virginia on The Guy Benson Show. Back here, same time, same place. We'll talk to you then. Thank you for listening. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.